Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Darren Stickle. Darren is the founder of Trust Unlimited and the author of a fabulous book, which I recommend to all of you, called Building Trust. Daryl, welcome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Daryl, before we get started, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background, please? Sure. I was born and raised in a small town in northern Canada, fairly remote. Had a tumultuous upbringing and started looking at becoming a clinical psychologist. Worked with families in crisis, troubled teens, worked on crisis lines, those kinds of things. And then came to realize that a lot of the folks I was working with were just doing the best they could. And you could see a path forward for them, but they they just couldn't get there. And so I switched out of psychology and moved into public administration, worked in native land claims in British Columbia. They would ask me deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what does the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? The last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for 100 years they should trust us? Which <laughs> seemed like a good question. And my initial response was, maybe it would help if we were trustworthy. I didn't get nearly the positive response I had hoped for, Marcus. And, and so really? I, uh, that, <laughs> I went off to Duke and wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments and had the good fortune of having some leading academic experts around. When I finished, they took me aside and said, okay, so when you first came to us with this topic, we thought it's too big. He never solves it. We'll give him six months, then he'll come crawling back to us. And they said, six months in, you were so far beyond us. We couldn't help anymore. All we could do was sit and watch. And they said, here we are two years later. We think you've solved it. And so I left there, went to work for McKinsey and Company for a couple of years, was injured on the way to a client site, and started my own little company called Trust Unlimited. And I've spent the last 20 years helping people better understand what trust is, how it works, and how to build it. Okay, so let's start with defining trust. Sure. I, that's a great place to start. Trust is the willingness to be vulnerable when you can't completely predict how somebody else is going to behave. And so it has a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability embedded in that definition. Say that again. It's the willingness to be vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. Okay. So there's uncertainty and there's vulnerability in there. Two things that human beings run away from. Right. So how do you condition yourself to learn to trust? Well, partly it's because we need collaborative action to get things done in many instances. You know, if we think about leaders in organizations, they don't actually turn a screw or deal with a client. They need the actions of others to be successful. Yeah. And so the more senior we become, the less direct control we have over outcomes, the more we need other people to help us achieve our goals and objectives. And that plays itself out, you know, not just in organizations, but in families, in relationships for us to, to find a mate. They need to trust us. Life is a game. Of, it's a cooperative game at the end of the day, hopefully. And I think from the time we were cavemen, we probably had to work together to hunt and gather and, and survive. Cooperation is humanity's superpower. It's what put us to the top of the food chain. It's not our ability to run fast, and it's not our terrifying fangs and claws. Chimpanzees are about five times stronger than we are. We're not physically the greatest species on the planet. 
However, our intellects, especially when we combine them, are incredible. And one of my favorite uh, lessons comes from both uh, Ben Franklin and uh, Einstein, which is that, you know, given the option of spending an hour on a problem, uh, spend 55 minutes on the problem and five minutes only on the solution. Because you, the more you understand the problem, the more likely you are to come up with a sustainable solution without the negative unintended consequences. And where you have lots of eyes on the problem as well, that irons out those uh, anomalous outcomes. So why is it we don't cooperate more? We're not good at understanding the impact of things that don't have an immediate reaction. So you and I are going to have a conversation. We're going to have this engaging uh, interaction on your podcast, and there will be a ripple effect. You know, there may be somebody that sees this six months from now or a year from now, and it has a profound effect on the way that they think about something. But you and I don't get that feedback. And so a lot of times we can find collaborative efforts that work in the short term, but humanity is not great at thinking longer term and, and solving complex problems. It's, it's why we need to have parents. It's why we need governments. We tend to be slaves to a reinforcement that happens almost immediately. It's why we so often see behaviors that have short-term gain for long-term pain, you know, substance abuse. And we'll see some people with abusive behavior, and, and they do that because they get what they want in the short run. They're not enlightened enough to be able to think about, oh, what are the long-term impacts of this you know, if I yell and scream at Marcus, he may placate me to get me away from him, but then he'll go out of his way to not be in that position again. Right. Okay. So again, part of this um, building of trust appears to be that your thinking has to be medium to long term, not short term. You're not reacting to the headline of the moment. And as a result, what you're creating is consistency you're creating certainty that that person is reliable. And I think that those are qualities of trustworthy people. Uh, Is that fair? I think that's very fair. And, you know, I think that when we're deciding whether to trust someone, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The the first question is how likely am I to be harmed, Mm -hmm. which is perceived uncertainty. And the second question is if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability those multiply together to give us a level of perceived risk. We each have a threshold. So some people are more trusting than others. We each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And if our perception goes beyond that threshold, we don't trust. But if it's beneath it, then we do. And so building trust becomes an exercise of understanding where does uncertainty come from and how do I take steps to reduce it? And where does vulnerability come from and how do I take steps to manage that for the other party? And so that we can get that multiplication below that threshold. So share with me your trust model or trust it with some of your trust models. Because yeah, so and, and I'm, yeah, so I'm I'm happy to do that. So the basis of trust are uncertainty and vulnerability. The trust decision is that comparison of, of the level of perceived risk versus the risk threshold. And then there's perceived outcomes. You know, we interpret the world through stories. And you and I can have exactly the same experience, but have dramatically different stories about what happened. And so so different perceptions of whether it was a good exchange or a bad exchange or who was responsible. And that perceived outcome then feeds back into our next interaction with that same person or or with somebody like them. 
And in the middle of all this are our emotional states, whether we like or dislike somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, most trust research treats people like they're rational actors. <laughs> Have you met people, Marcus? <laughs> Seriously, the only people who can possibly come up with something as inane and stupid as that are economists. And I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, the economics should be the study of how human beings behave under conditions of scarcity. That's what economics is really about. But the idea that uh, human beings are rational is insane. And the more extreme our emotional states become, the more biased we become that you and I've had a couple of conversations. I actually quite like you. I've really enjoyed the conversations we've had. And so I have this bias now. And so I'm, I'm going to look for reasons to trust you. It's a lens through which I'm interpreting new information that I get about you, but it's also a lens through which I look at the outcomes of our exchanges and interactions. And the more extreme those emotional states become, the less rational I am. And so it can have this virtuous cycle on itself. I love the images of Statler and Waldorf in the background. You know, it just puts a smile on my face. And so we we have this sort of virtuous cycle that's, that's going. The same can happen if we dislike somebody. Yeah. Right? And we see this in the U.S., uh, the polarization of the Republicans and the Democrats, where as soon as somebody identifies themselves, then there's a subset of the population that likes them, and a subset of the population that doesn't like them. And so they can say something and people can dramatically have dramatically different perceptions of whether that was positive or negative or whether it's trustworthy or not. And they'll search for confirming evidence of that story and it tends to feed on itself. So we get these vicious cycles in, in places where we don't like each other. And so when I was studying building trust in hostile environments, it ended up being those settings where people really didn't like each other. And all of the trust research has this cognitive rational actor approach. Well, it doesn't work in a setting where people don't like each other, where they're not rational. And so we actually need to try to reset those emotional states first. And then we can gain traction on some of these, with some of these more cognitive approaches. So how do you reset emotional states then? One of the things that, that I tend to do is, is try to get people to adopt the perspective of the other party. So I've been thrown into settings where people were struggling with each other or didn't like each other. And one of the exercises I'll do is I'll get them to, I'll get them to tell me their version of events, their story. And so let's say we've got two leaders, Tim and Bob. So I'll get Tim to tell me his story and I'll get Bob to tell me his story. And then I'll bring them together and I'll say, Tim, tell me Bob's story. And I get him to try to articulate the narrative or the story that the other person has what forces Tim to really think about it and to try to put himself in the other person's shoes. And it gives Bob a chance to agree or disagree or say, well, that's almost right or not quite. And now all of a sudden they've got a better understanding of one another. And we've sort of managed to deflate some of those negative emotions a little bit. They see each other as more human beings. That that reminds me very much of the talking stick exercise where when you're holding the talking stick, no one else can talk and people have to listen. And when they want to talk, you have to hand over the stick. But before they can talk, they have to be able to play back what you've just told them unless right. they're asking a clarification question. And there's no, you can't judge. 
So judgment's taken out of it. And again, this is one of the most important lessons that I've learned and I teach, which is the incredible power, more often than not negative, of attachment. Attachment to the outcome. Attachment to your entitlement. Just the language uh, organizations use. Learning versus training. Training is something that is done to you. Learning is something that you are responsible for. And you Yeah, I like that. So again, the language that we use, people my age grumble a lot about woke culture and all of this sort of stuff, but it does matter, the language that you use. Why create the conditions where you offend somebody when you don't need to? It just means that you need to adapt a little bit. But I think that's where a lot of people come into conflict because they don't see why they should change to accommodate others. And I think that's part of the problem. How do we address that? Yeah, I mean, there's a fear of change as well, right? Because it it feels like something's going to be taken away. We have this fear of loss. And we have this notion that something's going to be taken from us or that I think at times we all feel a bit like frauds. And we're worried that if people start shining a light, everyone's going to realize that I have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, one of the challenges I see with leaders and with organizations today is that, what good looks like in terms of leadership, if we were to talk about what an excellent leader is, the definition for that's a moving target and it's moving more quickly than it ever has. That really does concern me because if leaders don't understand what good looks like, then they're probably going to end up doing what they think they should. And um, so I'm going to pick up on something that you said earlier because it ties to this, which is I disagree. I don't think people fear change. What they fear is uncertainty and ambiguity. If the change is clear, it's mapped out, they understand the value of it to them. They might not like the whole idea of the inconvenience, but more often than not, they'll come on board quite easily, especially if they've been included. Now, part of the problem here is this lack of trust. So as we start defining what good leadership means, I think one of them, the fundamental is absolute clarity in their communication. If their communication is even remotely ambiguous, Chinese whispers go through the organization, and before you know it, you end up with politics. Ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. Right. So I love that. And the framing that I use actually helps me explain part of that. So I talked about uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk, right? And we have a certain set level of vulnerability when we're working at an organization. It's, it's where our income comes from. It's where our friends are. It's part of our sense of self, our identity. It's where our aspirations and dreams reside. And so we've got this fairly stable level of vulnerability. Once we start to talk about change, we're talking about spikes in uncertainty, right? Uncertainty is bouncing up and down. And over on the risk side, what's happening? Our perception of risk is bouncing up and down with the changes in uncertainty. And so we're going beyond the threshold and beneath it and beyond it and beneath it. And it's an incredibly uncomfortable place for us to be. And so what you articulate is exactly what I tell my clients to do, right? Let's reduce uncertainty as much as we can. Let's compress that as much as possible as we're making transitions so that it makes people more comfortable. Because what what happens otherwise is people start to disengage. They start to try to find ways to reduce their vulnerability. And they do that by becoming you know, uh, less connected at work, this notion of quiet quitting, 
they're always they always have their resume ready. They're ready to leave at a moment's notice. They're looking for better opportunities constantly. And who leaves first? The best people leave first because mm. they've got the most options. And the, the price you pay for top talent leaving. Uh, one of my friends, Stephen Harvard Davis, did a study on this um, years ago, but I don't imagine it's changed. If one of your top talent leaves, there is a 50% probability another one of your top talent will leave within six months. Now, yeah. in sales, an A player could easily be worth three to 12 times what a B player could be worth. And a B player could be worth three to nine times a C player. So yeah. A player could be 80 times more productive than your worst performer. Right. And if one of those leaves, it really does make a big dent in your balance sheet. Trust is not something that is a soft skill. Uh, let, let's just put this out there. The soft skills that we learn about building trust, listening, questioning, really effective answering, and uh, situational awareness are almost never taught, and they're not trained, and they're not refined. The best players, whether they're in sales, in management, in leadership, in project management, or whatever, are constantly refining those fundamentals. Now, yeah. almost nobody in the training world is bundling all of that together. No one in the management world is making sure that their salespeople are equipped. They teach them some shitty open questions. And they I, I remember being taught, never ask a closed question. That's a really bad bit of advice. Closed questions are very powerful and directional, and they uh, help people reach a decision. They move things forward. Right. So I was given that advice on day one of my selling. Don't ask closed questions. And I've held that for nearly 11 years. And it cost me a fortune because yeah. I didn't question. And this is the other thing that we've got to create. We've got to create conditions where people feel like they can question, where they can challenge, where they can share their insight. There's no point hiring these incredibly talented people and then telling them what to do. You're absolutely right. And one of the frustrations I have is that there's a lot of people talking about trust and its importance, but virtually no one is talking about how to build it. Mm -hmm. Virtually no one's talking about how to be systematic about it or intentional about it. And it's a skill that we can all build. You know, everyone has the ability to build trust. Some are better than others. So I, I view it as a continuum. And at the bottom end, there, there are those who have a lever that they pull to try to build trust with other people. Usually it's the ability lever. I have these kinds of credentials, this much experience, you know, those kinds of things to try to influence others. But if I'm trying to build trust with you and I'm pulling the ability lever and what you're really concerned about is, is whether I have your best interest at heart or not, my benevolence, then I miss. So those who are better have multiple levers that they pull. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. And, you know, the thing that kind of separates me from the field in terms of, you know, people who think about trust and study trust is that I, I wrote my doctoral thesis on it, so I had a deep theoretical understanding, but then I spent 20 years applying it, and the learning was incredible. And, you know, I, I like the comment you made about training versus learning, because so much of training feels like it's fire and forget. Yeah. You know, we launch this thing out there, and some people pick it up and, and run with it, but the batting average isn't as nearly as high as it could be. And so... Well, one hour per week of coaching for three months after training 
the ROI is 36 times higher than if you don't do the coaching. 36. Nice. And so what I've done with my training programs is started getting people to start applying the concepts as we go. We have coaching that's embedded. We have uh, group sessions. So it's, it's multifaceted in terms of people have different learning experiences. They have different things that, that have impact for them. But getting them to actually apply the concepts so that they get a chance to actually get out there and, and do it. And, and then they, they often come back saying, okay, so I felt awkward. It felt clunky. It's a new muscle that I'm trying to exercise. But man, was the response positive. Mm-hmm. You know, so having that, you know, the initial conversation I get people to have is a trust-based conversation. And so I'll say to them, you're going to pick someone to be your trust buddy. And you're just going to have a conversation with them. And so what you're going to do is you're going to say, I heard this guy, Daryl, he was talking about building trust. And he said that trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability, which had me thinking, how are we vulnerable to each other? You know, we're colleagues at work or, or I'm your dad or romantic partners or we're neighbors. How are we vulnerable to each other? And I know how I'm vulnerable to you. And so, you know, I'll start to, I'll go first. But how are you vulnerable to me? And then what are the uncertainties we have? So now all of a sudden we're having a trust conversation. It doesn't feel as murky and fuzzy and dangerous as me saying, do you trust me? And having you actually respond. Because the answer to that question is sometimes yes and sometimes no. Most of the trust literature doesn't include elements of vulnerability, which means that we can't talk about depth of relationship. It treats trust like a dichotomous variable. Right. So it's either present or absent. And when I ask people, who do you trust? I get these sort of deep personal relationships. But the reality is we trust people all the time. We just trust some more than others. It's how society functions. Hmm. And when I when I flip that question, Marcus, and I say to people who trusts you, I get this sort of long pause. And then people will give me the same cast of characters and they'll say, well, and then somebody will eventually ask me, how would I know? How do I know if somebody trusts me or not? Well, let's go back to the definition. Mm -hmm. Trust is a willingness to be vulnerable. How can I be vulnerable to you? And then am I? You know, if I'm a leader, how are my direct reports vulnerable to me? Well, they give me real feedback. They come with different ideas. They try things. They're willing to make mistakes or fail. And that's how they're vulnerable. If, If they're doing those things, then they trust me. If they're not, then they don't. Okay. So... Let's deal with this big, gnarly, thorny issue, which is self-trust, because I fundamentally believe that unless you have an absolutely rock-solid self-concept, you will always find a way to sabotage yourself. And when I'm working with clients, I'll typically look at three key areas, you, your business and career, and your family and personal life, because you cannot separate them. And when you overcompensate or overbias towards work, then the other parts of your life suffer. And what I've seen time and time again is people's failure to really understand who they are, what their limitation, self-limiting beliefs are, what their values, their motivations, their aspirations are, what they believe they're worth, their worthiness. Mm-hmm. If they don't tackle that, then chances are. When they show up, they will not 
project that they believe they trust in themselves. And no one wants to buy from or be led by someone who doesn't have that strong self-concept and that faith in themselves. The vulnerability, they may be flawed, they may be um, brittle, they may know that they're not perfect, but they do understand that there is a better future out there and that it can be accomplished. But they're not going. No one's going to buy from you if you project uncertainty, if you project distrust. Right. So this question comes up often, and it's a challenging one. And and partly, you know, because we interpret the world through stories, I can tell an incredibly negative story about myself, and I can tell an incredibly positive story about myself. And those are choices that I make on a daily basis. And one of the things that I do with my sons is I reinterpret the world through a positive lens. I have an, a relentlessly positive story about them, which helps them become more confident, more resilient in the world. This knowledge that they've got a safe base from which to, to launch, to take risks in the world, make mistakes. And really what I try to do is help people close the gap between how much they should be trusted and how much they actually are. So we don't want false confidence. What we want is a deeper understanding of where I can really lean in for you and where I can't. And so one of the things that I do is, you know, I'm legally blind. I've got post-concussion syndrome. I've got flaws, right? You know, for a complete list, you'd have to check out my ex-wife's blog, but, um, <laughs> but, but I've got flaws. I mean, you know, it's heavy well, reading. The URL for that, that should be entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, com. <laughs> You know, it's heavy reading, but it's very thorough. So the realization that I have flaws and the understanding of, of, you know, myself and the ability to predict myself allows me to actually come alongside others and say, these are the places where I can really help you. There are other things that I'm not equipped to help you with. I'm not the answer to all problems. But, you know, if you and I have a conversation and we problem solve together, I will be able to identify the places where I can really lean in. And so one of the, one of the challenges we see is, is not trying to oversell, not trying to convince people that we're, you know, God's gift. This, that's the U S marketing approach, right? Where, mm-hmm. where people are told it's going to be the best ever. And then they get there and it isn't, and they're disappointed. So there's this cynicism that arises That's a very short-term approach, but being able to say, this is what this, you know, these are what your needs are. Here's how I can help you. And here's, here's uh, other places you may want to look is a different experience for folks. And so one of the places where I think it really shows up for me is the willingness to be vulnerable. I'm willing to make myself vulnerable to others and it initiates a norm of reciprocity. And it's that belief that I can handle it. You know, I had uh, some students when I was teaching in Luxembourg at the Luxembourg School of Business. I had students from Eastern Europe who said, you know, a real man never makes himself vulnerable. And my response was real strength is the ability to be vulnerable and to be okay with it. Well, the word vulnerable comes from the Latin vulnerabilis. And vulnerabilis means to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. So it was an act of courage. Roman legionaries would rip off their body armor and go into battle um, to show an act of uncommon courage. But 
the reality is that putting yourself in a position where you might be hurt is scary. And there may be negative consequences. But in doing that, you demonstrate that you are giving trust. If you want other people to be vulnerable, you need to be vulnerable first. If you want other right. people to trust, you have to trust first. Yeah. And this is where so many leaders get it wrong because they think that their status, their position affords them the right to trust, the right to respect, the right to be listened to. And actually, if you've hired bright people, they will question. And whether yeah. you like it or not, they're going to be talking behind your back. And if you make the mistake, of thinking that either your way is the right way without including them, chances are you're going to find them putting a spanner in the works and um, you know, they'll sabotage your best efforts. This cycles back to the conversation we were having before about you know, what does excellence look like for leaders. So often they tend to rely on the things that got them there when those aren't the skills that allow them to be exceptional in their new role. And what they need to be doing is trying new things, learning new things. The fear that they have is when I start doing new things, I suck at it. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fall down. And they have this misguided notion, often like parents do, that I can't be wrong. I can't, I can't be flawed. I can't be human. And that's when we start to see uh, them develop real followership. When they say, I'm going to step into a new role, I'm probably going to make mistakes and there's going to be learning that takes place here. And I'm going to model that because I need you to be doing the same thing. And, you know, you talked about an A player as a salesperson. Well, few people start out as an A player. No, you know, no often they start off as a C and they turn into a B and then some of them through experience and, and intellect and, and training and learning become an A. And the right help and luck. And they make plenty of mistakes along the way. Can you define what you mean by followership? Because that may not be a term that people are familiar with. When I plant the flag and bla bravely wave the field forward, do they actually move? And, you know, we're seeing change fatigue in a lot of organizations where leaders will say, okay, we're going this way now. And everyone else in the organization just sits there and goes, you know what, we went that way six weeks ago. And then we went back the other way. And then we went a third way. I'm just going to sit here and wait because I know you're going to come back at some point. And so it's do people actually follow? Are they willing to go above and beyond? Because what drives success a lot of times for organizations is something called organizational citizenship behaviors. People willing to do things that aren't strictly within their job description, willing to go above and beyond either for clients or for one another. Uh, that's what pushes organizations to right, be. So this is discretionary effort. Yeah. The anti-quiet quitting, right? The complete opposite of quiet quitting. It's well, and and so that's what followership looks like is people willing to engage and willing to right. follow when you leave. Okay. So th this is really about driving true engagement. People who want to be there, who are excited to be there, who feel that the work that they're doing is important and meaningful. They uh, understand the impact they are having on others and the contribution that they're making. Their measuring um, allows them to check their progress and see that they are improving, that uh, they have a voice. And th these are things that command and control leaders um, abhor. 
they will do everything they possibly can uh, in order to try and prevent that kind of thing from happening. Uh, but if you do, if you allow that to happen, uh, you free up enormous amounts of creative juices. And um, uh, the, the trick is actually learning how to let go of control. Now, yeah. how do you get leaders to be vulnerable enough to give control to their people? Some really, well, many really struggle with that. Uh, in part, it's through conversation and being able to show them that leaders who are able to do that are just profoundly more successful. They actually tend to be happier. Uh, we see this in sales as well, right? Those who, those who have a product focus tend to underperform those who have a relationship focus. They tend to be more miserable and just less stable in terms of their performance and, and, and productivity. One of the, you know, I've had situations where I've had people who are in middle management roles and they, they get a new leader who says, oh, you sent out that email, you should check with me before you do that in the future. And my advice to them is get them to check everything. <laughs> and just overwhelm them with every decision until they get snowed under and, and realize, oh, I've got to let go of some of this. What's really, really interesting is that one of, the, one of my partners is a company that delivers at scale. So we can train 10,000 managers simultaneously to change their management style from command and control to one of operational coaching, which means you coach on the job, in the moment, at the point of need, based on what you see and hear. And um, the other person then goes away having taken ownership and having come up with the solution themselves with a little bit of coaching, asking the right questions, they get just enough to work it out and right. then commitment to act and when they're going to report back on their progress. And this way, you're starting to create ownership and responsibility, which again, I think as human beings, we love. What we don't like is having responsibility dumped on us because we're going to be blamed for it. But if we own uh, our part in coming up with the solution and we feel like someone has our back and we're allowed to fail, then remarkably, we can perform freely. We can be right. as creative as we need to be. Yeah, I, I remember my worst experience working was I was a co-op student, you know, so I'm, I'm doing my master's degree. I'm doing a three-month work term at a place. And my boss gets me to do some photocopying and then checks the photocopying. By the end of the day, I figured out how many hours I had left on my contract because I was just miserable. You know, getting us to be part of the problem-solving approach. And that's part of how we build trust as well, right? We, we involve the other person in the conversation. Now, there are things that we can do to build trust without including everybody in the conversation. But if we want to drive relationships deeper, we actually need to understand what other people think excellence looks like, what their true needs are, and how we can actually be helpful to, to align against those. You know, what promises they think we're making. And one of the gaps we'll find, you know, some of the levers that I talk about, the three most popular are benevolence, integrity, and ability. And it, it came from a guy named Roger Mayer, who's a friend of mine. They talked about trustworthiness. Well, you know, we'll find gaps when we have stories that don't align. And so I make a promise to you, and then I think I followed through on it, and you don't. 
And so I walk away thinking I did what I told Marcus I was going to do. And Marcus is sitting there going, well, he promised me X and he delivered Y. Or he didn't even come close to what I thought he was going to do. And now we've got a misalignment. And your trust in me goes down. And this is where it's really important that ambiguity is removed from communication, where you're constantly agreeing little agreements. One of the most useful skills I've learned over the years is constantly to be contracting. Alec Baldwin was wrong in uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross. It's not always be closing ABC. It's always be contracting. Tiny little agreements all the way to make right. sure you don't have a big agreement at the end. If you're getting little agreements and permissions and you're constantly moving forward incrementally, then you make enormous progress. And what you find is what you have in common. So as we come into the, uh, the final furlong of this conversation, I would really like to spend the last few minutes focused on this one issue, which is um, in most human-to-human uh, -human interactions, what we tend to do is look for differences. How do we teach people to look for what we have in common so that we can start building bridges? Because in my experience, I mean, if we look at, let's say, Palestine and Israel, okay, I would put money on it that they have more in common than they have in difference. But the emphasis is that always to focus on the stuff that's in difference. And I think we see this a lot because it's us versus them. What advice would you give to somebody who recognizes that human beings are flawed, they're emotional, we need to take risks, we need to be vulnerable, and we have to be ready to handle uncertainty. Um, but to, right. be able to do that calmly in a practiced manner so that they don't right. end up suddenly turning into their monkey brain? That's the $64 million question. And part of the challenge is, is that a lot of political leaders like to vilify others because it creates a sense of shared purpose. It allows them to create power. And, and we see the same thing where, when relationships go south. We'll tend to vilify the other party to justify actions that we're taking, to rally support for ourselves. And then we find ourselves doing things we would have never thought we would do because we've dehumanized the other person. I think a large part of this, you know, what I tend to do is, is I will share pieces of myself, you know, share parts of my story, share my interests, share my background. You know, you and I were talking about our kids and I asked, how old are your kids? And you, and you were telling me their ages. And I said, oh, mine are similar ages. And, and now we've got a shared place where we can overlap and have common interest and common conversation. One of the ways is to find those commonalities and focus on those. We can do that by openly sharing, making ourselves a bit vulnerable, talking about, you know, I'm really struggling with. So one of the things I struggle with is, is getting the signal through the noise. And I share that with people. I say, I actually have, and I'm not trying to flog my book here, but in my book, I've really laid out an approach for people to build trust. And I really want people to read it and actually apply it. Please do. It's really yeah. good. And so, so the approach that I'm taking here is, is by sharing the problem that I'm having and saying, I want you to come alongside me. Like I'm dropping grains of sand in the ocean. I want people to come and help me pick up great big rocks. And now all of a sudden we've got a shared superordinate goal. And that's a big part of this is having a shared goal or finding places where our overlaps are important to us. You know, uh, people in Israel and Palestine have children. They love them. And 
that's a they'd like a better future for them. They would like them to not be engaged in the same nonsense and crap that they're engaged in now. And I bet you if, if we talk to people from disparate viewpoints from all over the world, we could find things like that where they said, yeah, I would like the world to be a better place in the, fu- in the future. And here's what that better place looks like. Oh, my God, that's what my better place looks like. So once we've developed those sort of shared superordinate goals and, and started developing some of those habits, I think that if if people had my guide dog's name is Drake. And if people had Drake's brain chemistry, the world would be a much better place because he starts <laughs> with a positive assumption about everyone. Right. <laughs> and my so is hearing dogs the same. Yeah. Right. And so he changes the way that I interact with the world because he changes the way that I engage the world. Mm-hmm. And so I have these re- incredible positive stories. I have these incredible positive experiences. And if we start with a positive narrative, then information starts coming to us and we interpret it more through a better lens. A few years back, I read a very interesting book, which was How Emotions Are Made. And they came up with a formula, which is expectations and preferences as compared with reality as perceived equals an emotional response. Now, what's interesting is I've added something to that, which is prejudice. Because when people come at um, a situation through the lens of the drama triangle, which is a victim position, a persecutor position, and a rescuer position, and ego thrives on drama. When people come at that equation through that lens, so they bring prejudice, their expectation, their preferences are negative. They're hoping to score a point or do some harm. And their expectations are that this person is going to be untrustworthy. They're someone I'm not going to like. And you filter it through that. So your reality as perceived is already colored. And so you have an emotional reaction. Now, if you're operating from the winner's triangle, you don't bring prejudice. There is no pre-judgment. And your expectations and your preferences are positive. You're hoping, you're expecting that this person is going to come with good intent and that you are going to reach an accommodation that both sides are going to be happy with. And then you filter the world through that lens, and then your reality as perceived means that you can have a rational response because your amygdala isn't being fired into freeze, flight, fight, or or flog. Um, And the net result of that is that you can have rational conversations. And this is why so few conversations in day-to-day life start and end in an adult-to-adult framework. and so. One of the most useful things anyone can learn is how to establish expectations and an agenda at the beginning, which agrees what you both want to accomplish, are those outcomes compatible, and what happens at the end. And if you do that, and at the end, you reconfirm what you've agreed, and you agree next steps. So then you've got certainty, and you keep moving forward, and people are happy with change, and people make change decisions quickly. Yeah. One of the things that I recommend for folks is is to help people interpret your actions by giving them your story. And so when it comes to that integrity lever, you know, I'll say, remember when I promised you I was going to do this? This is me doing this. And this is what I'm going to do next. And here's how these actions align. You're telling them what you're going to do so that when you do it, then you're meeting the expectation. And I try to create a pattern of behavior that makes it easier to predict me. So my sons know 
that when something goes wrong, I'm going to respond not with anger and vitriol, but rather with curiosity and support, right? It's something went wrong, things happen. It's how we respond that matters. And once they've learned that, they're able to open up to me. They're able to connect with me. They tell me things I never would have told my parents. And we have conversations that are deep and meaningful on a regular basis. And it's because I've opened up that space for them and modeled and consistently shown them that I'm not going to overreact and that my main concern is about them. Now, imagine if we were able to do that as, you know, on the sales front. I know you, you talked to a lot of salespeople. Imagine if we're able to start talking with clients or potential customers and saying, really, my aspiration is that you be happy, that you have a good experience, that you get your needs met. And I don't need to be the one that does that, but I would like to help you along that journey. And so that when I'm able to identify for you how I'm able to meet your needs, if a need comes up that aligns with me, you're going to come back to me because I'm the one who's been helping you. And, you know, I worked with a mutual fund company that was flogging product. I said, your, your approach is completely wrong. You shouldn't be trying to go from 10% to 11% of somebody's book or their, you know, their sales. What you want to do is double the amount of sales that they do because 10% of twice as much is twice as much. Mm -hmm. And Oh, by the way, along the way, they're going to start turning to you and you're actually going to get a bigger percentage. The constraint in a lot of instances was I'm, I'm constrained by my company. I can't have more than 20% of your product, but I'm going to max that out. The ability to earn that kind of trust and, and that kind of volume of business means that you also have certainty, which then means that you can then speak to your own management and leadership from a position of strength. So many salespeople are inconsistent performers. And if you focus on building trusted relationships and you focus on the medium to long term and understand that they may never become a customer, but your job is to facilitate the best possible decision for them, both for yeah. now and the future, whether it involves you or not. And they need to feel safer having you alongside them on their buying journey than without you. Then you will pick up a lot of business because experience has taught me that when I sell like that, even if I don't get the business, I get a lot of referrals, I yes. get wonderful recommendations. And uh, when someone has a problem, I'm often the first words that come out of someone's mouth. Uh, what my name is, uh, I'd be a rather large mouthful. So again, I think far, far too often, people's emphasis or focus on the short term, instead of thinking, when you're prospecting, think, this could be a customer for my entire career. Yeah. How do I prospect for people who are going to be customers for life? And what do I have to do when I show up? What's my intent? Um, so that when I project out, what gets reflected back is a lowering of resistance, a willingness right. to let me in, an openness to being vulnerable, an openness to intimacy. And understanding that, it's one level of vulnerability for me to buy a product from you or to invest with you. It's a whole different level of vulnerability for me to make referrals because financial organizations will say to me, okay, so you've invested some of your money with me. And according to the research from the mutual fund company I was working with, anyone who's got about a million dollars invested has 3.1 advisors on average. And so 
they're hedging their bets. But then they say, well, why won't you give me the referral? You've, you've bought my product. Yeah, that's a whole different level of vulnerability. Hmm. I'm not going to trumpet you to my friends and risk my relationships and my reputation until I'm really sure. Absolutely. Well, Darren, let's make that the topic of the next conversation that we have. We've come to the top of the hour. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Tell me this, one, one final question then. What was your best mistake and what did you learn? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Hmm. So when I was advising the folks, uh, the Canadian military, when they were working in Afghanistan, the mistake I made was, was over-reliance on the benevolence, integrity, and ability levers. Those are individual elements of uncertainty. And uncertainty comes to us from two places. It comes from us as individuals, and it comes from the context. And what I realized is that one person with a machine gun looks a lot like another person with a machine gun. <laughs> yeah. And so context was actually the overwhelming driving force of that. And so what we needed to understand was, was we had an over-reliance on formal mechanisms of control. Context is sort of formal or informal mechanisms of control. And in places like Afghanistan, where they don't have strong central government, it was all those informal mechanisms. And that stalled things a lot longer than it should have. And it allowed me to understand that when we're trying to deal with uncertainty, context actually is primary early in the relationship until we get to know the other person. And then the weights shift as we get to know each other better. Those individual pieces become more, more, uh, more cogent. So I think that was one of the biggest mistakes I made. I learned a tremendous amount about it. Uh, most of the trust research doesn't talk about context. That was, that was a learning point for me. It's absolutely the heart of selling as well. Technique is the least important part of the entire sales process. And technique used in the wrong context is lethal. The problem is so much of training and the purchasing of training is about teaching people how to use moves on people, to manipulate them, to browbeat them, to try and create urgency where none really exists for the customer. And so right. you're creating all of these false pressures on the relationship, which the customer will then read as, you don't have my back. I yeah. cannot trust you. So you're always yeah. going to be arm's length. Absolutely. Okay, Daryl, how can people get hold of you? They can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Daryl Stickle on LinkedIn. They can also reach out Daryl at trustunlimited.com. They can check out my website. There's all kinds of stuff on the blog section that's free for people to go look at. There's articles I've written. There's there's uh, other podcasts. I welcome conversation. I really hope people, because my aspiration is to make the world a better place. And we're facing some very complex problems that we've created. Collective collaborative action is the way that we solve them. And, you know, we can be intentional about building trust. So I hope people read the book and, and apply the concepts and, and reach out. Excellent. And the book is called Building Trust by Daryl Stickle. Yep. Excellent. You can get it on Amazon or audio. Brilliant. And I, I've got the audio very good. Um, I, I've learned a lot from it already. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. It's been a great experience. I, I'm looking forward to us being friends for a long time. Me too. This is going to be a lot of fun and working together because I've got a project for us. I'll chat to you when we stop recording. So All right. in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs.com. 
And in the blurb, there's a link for you to connect with me to book some time to talk about coaching and training if you want some help. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.